Wesley Yang. You're listening to the Year Zero podcast, which is hosted on Substack at wesleyyang.substack.com. This is The Road to Year Zero, an ongoing series examining the short and long-term factors that produced what I referred to as the ideological succession. A little over a month ago, I sat down with Jonathan Che to discuss his 2015 New York Magazine cover story, Not a Very PC Thing to Say, which I framed as an opening salvo to the culture war in a new key that quickly followed. It was an inflection point where one began to see the insta-manufacture of consensus on the internet. In this case, a consensus of hostility and derision that the piece summoned up in opposition to itself, and that helped to set the tone in media for the years to come. At the time of our interview, Chait was working on a piece exploring the current state of the culture, which since this, as he put it, quote, wave of illiberal norms around the discussion of race and gender began to hit an expanding array of progressive institutions seven or eight years ago, and arguing that we had hit yet another inflection point in the year 2022, wherein the illiberal left, as Chait refers to it, tends to reduce nearly every issue to a moralistic binary and cast any dissent as a moralistic failing, has begun to encounter, as he would go on to say, a careful but firm pushback on campus, in media, and in politics. We published excerpts of the interview that focused on his 2015 piece and the sudden and spontaneous response it generated against him at the time, and have been waiting to post the second part of the interview until his new piece was published. You can listen to part one of The Road to Year Zero, Chait versus the Internet, on my Substack or your preferred podcast provider, and check out his recent piece, Political Correctness is Losing, in New York Magazine, which I'll link to in the show Now that Chait's article is out, we're going to continue the interview right where we left off in the last episode. We'll discuss whether rumors of a vibe shift are real, the weakness of wokeness, why you see so many editorial columns in the New York Times lamenting cancel culture, and why Chait believes this is going to be a self-ending phenomenon, in his view, because it, quote, ultimately makes it impossible to run an institution. Followers of my Twitter account or my Substack will recognize that these are views that I do not hold myself, but Chait's article and the exchange we have to follow provides a, a useful registration of a view that is worthy of longer, more sustained engagement, which I will be doing in writing on my Substack, which I have been continuously doing on my Twitter account, but which I enjoyed having in dialogical form with Chait himself in the interview that follows. So it's being institutionalized. It's producing waves of Republican backlash. It may imperil, uh, uh, you know, sort of the prospects of the Democratic Party. There may just be thermostatic par- uh, politics that's going to take them out of power anyway, to some degree. Um, what, what, where do you think that we are today? And I know that you're writing a piece, um, you know, about a turn. So could you talk about the thesis of the piece and what evidence you're going to be using? I don't want to scoop myself completely. Right. I do want. I do want. Part, we're not going to include this in. Uh, I'm going to do a short episode that is going to mostly focus on 2015. Okay. So um, yeah. So I'm, this will come out after your piece comes out. I think. I think. So the. I think the main when I. So the evidence, of a change, I would piece together just more examples of people fighting back who didn't fight back before, who initially greeted waves of this by thinking. 
Well, if it's done in the name of racial justice, I'm a liberal, I'm in favor of racial justice, and I'm for it. And then they saw it play out enough to get a sense that something was wrong and that they shouldn't go along with it. And, and when they saw it happen again, they did want to go along with it. Um, mm, right. Like I told you, I've had more people tell me they disagreed with me at first and now agree with me than, than anything else. So I mm-hmm. think just learning by doing and seeing how this happened made people think who originally thought I want to be on the side of this decide they, they can't just go along with it. They need, mm-hmm. to, they need to draw some kind of limit or it's going to get out of control. Number one. Number mm-hmm. two, I think the democratic party played a huge role here. Mm-hmm. Number one, and within that, sorry, I, I guess I should switch to a, B and C a Trump leaving helped. Yeah. B, sure. the Democratic Party needs to maintain a, a multiracial coalition. You can't win at politics by intimidating people because we have a secret ballot in this country. You can't mm-hmm. shut people up and win uh, when they can just go to the ballot and vote for whoever they want. So the Democratic Party can't operate this way. And I think the the, the people who are accountable to the voters understand, understand this very well. Um, so I think they've... Um, to the extent that this has gotten big enough to touch them and impinge upon their ability to to do their jobs, I think Democratic public officials have have pushed back. And and I think the Democratic Party, as a multiracial institution that's publicly accountable, has had a pretty important role in, in conscribing this. Now, they've wanted to do it by working within their coalition, right? They don't want to create waves. People like us are happy to have big public fights. If you're, a, if you're a politician, you don't want big public fights, right? You want people on your side to all be together. So a lot of them have, have tried to smooth things over. But I do think they've tried to assimilate, push back, um, and get, just get this under control. And I think, I, think that's, I think it's happened to an extent. So, I mean, I, th- I guess there's a consciousness that um, to what extent did you buy into, you know, back in, there was, there's an idea of demographic destiny, um, yeah. that, that's kind of a coalition of uh, college-educated white liberals along mm-hmm. with the browning of America would inexorably create a permanent, uh, de- you know, democratic majority, yeah. the Obama coalition, the coalition of the ascendants that, yeah. uh, that, that showed up for him. Uh, would just be a permanent condition, and we, yeah. in the Trump years, and in even in the 2020 vote, we we began to see premonitions that that wasn't actually going to work out. Yeah. But did you buy into it at the time? Uh, and yeah. and 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 then d- did it kind of fall apart? Huh. So I always saw it more, somewhat more in generational terms than in, than in racial terms. I think if you mm. look at generational cohorts, the youngest have been the most liberal. There's this huge widening generational chasm. And it's historically been true that, that people tend to hold on to the partisan attachment they develop in their first few voting experiences. But um, I also think that 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 this is not, you know, developing the way we thought it would at the time, um, in part because these same trends is, have made the Republican Party more electorally efficient, right? Mm. Made them stronger among white working class voters who are overrepresented in the, in the um, electoral college, right? So Obama did better in the electoral college than the popular vote, and, and the reverse has held true since then. But I also think that to an extent, the Democratic Party has spent down its majority by moving left. Mm. So they've you know just just lost some of the voters that they were that they were that they were gaining. 
And and do you see the uh, the Virginia results as a kind of uh, something that made it unmistakable to sort of uh, Democratic office holders and professionals associated with the party? You know, I think the 2020 elections with Trump to an extent. I mean, that was a, that people experienced that as a defeat more than as a victory. They expected to win mm. um, by you know five ten points. Mm. They expected to control the Senate um, easily. So. Um, that more than Virginia, but I think Virginia contributed to it. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. the Democratic the Democratic Party has has recognized that they have a problem with the electorate, and I think that's that's played a really important role. So there's so there's two things happening. Like I, I do sense that there is a kind of vibe shift. That was a term that appeared in New York Magazine, where where people are not as enamored, excited, stimulated by. Mm-hmm. A continual repetition of of this of the same tropes and controversies, and are 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 looking just even at a cultural level to you know um, put aside the kind of stifling atmosphere of the last seven years. On the other hand, a lot of things are more institutionalized than ever. So there, so you know, everybody kind of you know sort of. Uh, the people that you were speaking to, right? Like in, in in July of 2020, they kind of dealt with it by signing on to various public statements that commit themselves to right. the whole everything, right? Yeah. yeah to, to whatever degree they yeah. actually believe it or are going to follow through on it. Right. Rhetorically, there has been total surrender. Everyone is repeating the mantras and, yeah. and everybody felt that they needed to do that. Uh, yeah. at, at, at the same time, you do have these discrete instances like the uh, you know Erwin Chemerinsky, he's the uh, the dean of UC Berkeley, clarifying points that we, we could have used clarification on probably in 2015, which is that shouting down a speaker is not itself free speech, but but like an attack on free speech, yeah. and that was sort of the the liberal establishment finally like eight years down the line, sort of like weighing in in its official capacity. To say no, this is what the rule is actually, and and we indulged a lot of the other stuff for the last seven years, but like henceforth, like this is the rule. Wh- yeah. Whether that actually means that there's like a real will behind it, mm-hmm. there may be. I just I don't really know. What is your perception of it? No, I think you're absolutely right that people are fighting back. I mean, the Yale Law School pushback um, against shouting down speakers. You, you know, I think people we are willing to have seen this happen enough that they're actually willing to. Where, where at first they either sympathized with what the left was doing, or they thought, "Is it, it's not important? I don't need to speak up." That was a really, that was a really, you know, as banal as it is, that was a really common response I've gotten the whole time. Like, why are you complaining about this? What the right's doing is so much worse. Why, you know, that's what the the college teens thing is all about, right? Why do you care about what a handful of college teens are doing when people who have real power are are doing all these horrible reactionary things? They just thought it was insignificant and would go away. And as it's gotten closer and closer to them, I think just realized it isn't, and they can't just wait it out and they need to say something. And um, so, you know, the whole problem the left had is that they got a lot of people to go along with them quietly without really agreeing with their principles. And, and that and that mm-hmm. shallowness um, is, is coming back to bite them. So they were able to create a powerful structure of preference falsification where people didn't want to stick their neck out. They didn't want to suffer the fate of Jonathan Chait in 2015. Uh I, I imagine there must have been certain moments because you've said various people have come around and said, oh, I guess you're right. 
there must have been various moments over the last seven years where your inbox would be punctuated by people saying, this, this, this shit hit the fan where I am, and I realized that you were right. Yes. Could you say what some of those moments were? I mean, I guess the you know July twenty twenty would probably be one of them, but uh, you know some some others. I um, uh, <laughs> I I think I uh, somewhat um, ticked off one of my friends by trying to elliptically describe one of these cases uh, that uh, was meant to be shared in confidence. So I really don't want to say anything. Well, that- you don't have. Okay, you don't have to say the case, but I mean, you know, there are certain events where you would get emails, right? Like, yeah. like public events. So what you are re- reporting on in a way is, in a general way, <laughs> yeah, the I contents mean, of your inbox that, you know, you're connected to a lot of people who represent liberal opinion and, and one by one people have right. come around to your view and that's what you're going to be announcing in your next piece. Is that basically... Where we are. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to put myself to that extent. I'm trying yeah. to, I think external events like the election are, are more important. But yeah, I mean, look, yes. I'm, I, so I guess you're looking for specificity. The reason you see so many editorials and columns in the New York Times about cancel culture is that people at the New York Times are freaked out about this because they're seeing it there. Right. There, are, uh, there are some really radical left-wing people at the New York Times who have the moderates right. freaked out all the time. Like that's why. Right. That's why. You know, you don't have to be done to to understand that that's the motivation, right? It's happening there behind the scenes, and it's not just happening at the times. You know, I think like the Post has this kind of stuff too. Like, and and there are various ways that they're trying to accommodate it, right? By like, you create a special section, or and in a way, sixteen nineteen, I think, was an attempt to kind of create a sort of you know, yes, the time stood completely behind it and everything, but it was it was a way to kind of contain it and say, "Oh, we did this thing, right?" And 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 then the response to it in in that amazing town hall was yeah. the you know the 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 person I don't think their gender is specified got up and in the transcript that was leaked said, yeah. "Okay, we did sixteen nineteen, but sixteen nineteen is everything. Race is in everything. It's in our food. It's in our yeah. it's 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 in our health policy, and so." And so we have to have basically a monomaniacal focus on this where nothing that we report on is untouched by the identity first frame. And you could see that Kat, it makes him nervous. So that question, <laughs> and, and because he's, he is trained up in the, you know, in the older news gathering tradition uh, where, where any kind of identitarian monomania is just not the way to approach things. He tries to say something to placate her that a year later, that, that person is in charge. Hi, this is Wesley Yang. You are listening to the Year Zero podcast, which is hosted at Substack at wesleyyang.substack.com. In a way, I think they kind of wanted to... Um, not have it pervade everything. So they created a special project. And then there was that infamous leaked transcript where you had, uh, you know, sort of a member of the staff saying, you know, it's in our economic policy, it's in it's in everything, and it has to be the focus of everything. And you could see that, you know, Baquette is a little taken aback by this, and doesn't quite know how to deal with it. And I think that represents the kind of um, encounter of the liberal establishment, uh, people who were 
raised and trained in the older norms, the previous, the prior journalistic ethos, the prior moral clarity journalistic ethos, um, who wanted to accommodate and, you know, didn't want to be seen as opposing and were gen generally saw themselves as, as aligned with both the, the people and the, and the cause, mm -hmm. having these moments where they realized, oh, there's something else is happening here. Yes. I seem to recall that uh, Jonathan Chait said this wasn't liberalism, but a form of illiberalism, maybe, or, and maybe that's right. That would be giving me too much credit, uh, but yeah. But, you know. Yeah. I think, um, yeah. just, to, just to pull back, I think at some level, people like you and I might overanalyze, might overanalyze the reaction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, like I studied a lot of political theory in college, and, I, and I'm guessing you did too. Even a lot of educated people, I think, don't have that level of philosophical sophistication. And they really do just tend to think in more practical or simple terms about what they're encountering. And they don't really dig down into the assumptions. And will just they might take a claim completely at face value. And so if it presents as a defense of racial justice, they'll say, well, I'm from racial justice. Um, and they'll, and their backdrop assumption will just be that, that the two ideological strains in the world are liberalism and conservatism. And so if it's not conservatism, it must be liberalism. Um, and I don't think it's that much more complicated than that for a, a lot of people. You know, obviously there's a hardcore, uh, you know, of people who, who have read their elements of CRT or Catherine McKinnon or, or whatever, who, who, who have a sophisticated critique of liberalism, but that's always been a, a tiny minority of the people who are involved. Here. Right. Um, and, and so the stimulus was like, people had to be exposed to enough of it in order to know yeah. what it, what it was, uh, to know that it may not be the thing that it presents itself as, <laughs> and, and that yeah. maybe that, it, you know, it becomes, and there has to be a kind of, a uh, point of critical mass where people then decide what they want to do about it, and maybe it becomes necessary for them to speak out. Do you think it's too late, or or, or do you think that there there is enough energy and and will and motive in the sense of like this may harm us electorally, or this may d do harm to normative standards of truth seeking in the sciences, or in journalism, or in the social sciences, or in the humanities. Um, uh, especially when it has been institutionalized to the point where it has, because if you look at the prospectuses of the Mellon Foundation, of all of these institutions that drive the direction of scholarship, and and um, oh. it's all you know, like increasingly we're getting to the point where your diversity statement is more important than almost any other criterion to be hired in academe and so on. So you do have some people who are willing to speak out. How much confidence do you have that like they have the energy, the wherewithal, and even the ability at this point to kind of preserve the sort of liberalism that you're writing in defense of back then? Um, I'm, I think we're at an inflection point where people are fighting back. I think we're starting to see this recede. I'm not that confident. Hmm. I also know I have a bias towards optimism <laughs> um, that doesn't always bear <laughs> out. Um, so I could be totally wrong. Um, I don't think this political uh, movement is sustainable. I think it's going to run against hard limits. I think what happens in politics is really, really important. So I think when you have the Democratic Party that understands it has to be oppositional to this ideology, um, I think that's going to put real hard limits. Um, 
or at least contained the space in which this movement can 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 control uh, discourse. Um, and if you can't have a, a part, either of the two parties, uh, then you can't really control state power. And if you can't control state power, um, you're right. Maybe you know not the nonprofit world is gonna have is gonna be off the left wing deep end for forever. But I don't know. You know, I think what you referred to also is just the what the the vibe shift. Um, it's ridiculous to generalize into the limited data space is the one I'm about to give you. But um, I have two kids in high school, um, so you know, I, I I asked them recently. You know, are what are you seeing from your friends, right? Because they were all because they their world was dominated by their peers. Um, who were using all these terms and concepts and, and trying to cancel each other and 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 never get caught using last month's jargon when 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 there was a new jargon to be to be mastered this month. Well, and all that stuff was going on like crazy in 2020, and they they, they really think it's slowed down. Huh. Um, it's not gone away, but um, you know what the way the tone I the the note I ended my piece on in 2015 was the the weaknesses of this is that it's exhausting. It really chews people up, and 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 I don't think people want to spend yeah. the rest of their lives following these rules and 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 constantly le- learning new terms and, and, and confessing um, and having struggle sessions and 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 cutting off their friends and um, they just can't keep doing it. I don't think maybe maybe I'm wrong, but um, I think it will. I think it will turn around. Yeah, I think the dynamics that operated in sectarian left spaces starting in the late 60s through the 70s and then repeating itself again and again in other sectarian left spaces like in the 80s and 90s, the anti-globalization movements and so on, it it always had the same effect. It would uh, you know, it would produce cycles of of, of vengeance and and of bitterness. And and eventually people would tire of it, and and, and the movement yeah. would dissipate. So, we we now saw this recapitulated within the ruling institutions of American life, not just in some weird hippie commune or even the yeah. you know the uh, Park Slope uh, food co-op, yeah. right? Like we saw it happen at the New York Times, right? But what eventually kind of brings it to an end is that people are just so exhausted that they 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 put it aside. Well, let me give you another example, actually, and this is what I, something I'm also going to be putting in my article about why I think this is going to be a uh, a self-ending phenomenon, uh, is that I think it, it ultimately makes it impossible to run an institution, right? Like, so like at the, at the most direct level, you have these guidelines of like, you know, uh, the, the white supremacy culture is, you know, like being on time and being good at your job and thinking logically and planning for the future. Um, <laughs> And I know a couple of people whose whose companies have had a training where they've taught them that. <laughs> but like, what's going to happen in ninety nine percent of these institutions is they're just going to suffer quietly through the presentation and go back to doing things the way they always did. But the places that try to institute it are just going to melt down because it doesn't work, right? It's basically saying like, if we try to like in any way be organized and good at our jobs, 
we're being white supremacists, so then we'll stop being good at our jobs. And like you've seen this happen in like some left wing institutions that just melt down. <laughs> was, the, was it Diana Morales, the my mayoral candidate? Right, right. Staff went yeah. on strike before the campaign before the election. Like, yes. I mean, what's going to happen? Like, they'll just literally just melt down and end these organizations. Like, you just can't function under these rules, so they'll just disappear. Yeah, so so many places have sold young people entering into the workplace that sure. the normal vicissitudes of the working world are violence and oppression. Yeah, and 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 uh, and you know if there isn't a racial identity, there is a form of disability or uh, a newly manufactured form of sexual minoritarianism that allows one to stake one's claim as a member of the marginalized. Yeah. Um, People eventually will see through that and and stop <laughs> and stop buying into it. I mean, I guess that's the pitch, and I, it's a reasonable one. I think that is a path toward uh, toward toward normalcy. Yeah, I mean, like you you could try to accommodate it if you know, like to the extent you come across these these complaints, you could say, well, well, we'll give you more time off, we'll give you some some snacks, you know, we'll we'll we'll, we'll let you pay for your therapist, but like ultimately, like you have to be good at your job, like you you actually have to show up and think logically about all those kinds of things, or you know, or we're just going to be cooked. So, right. Uh, okay, so you know that seems hopeful. So we're in this funny moment where. Uh, it's never been as institutionalized. Everyone has taken a pledge. Everyone has bent the knee. Everyone has issued their five-year DEI plan. And <laughs> everyone has been through the training where, yeah. where they, they, they've been told by their employer that punctuality yeah. is a form of white supremacy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've had a few tech companies that have come out and said, we're against struggle sessions. We, we, we actually are an institution that has a mission in order to deliver for customers, right? Rather, <laughs> rather than to like, you know, save the world, right? And yeah. bring about cosmic justice in all of our, right. of our entities. Uh, you know, the response was, you know, the absence of struggle sessions is violence, right? And eventually uh, we're going to get there, maybe. That's, that's, your, that's your partially optimistic vision of, of what necessarily must happen, uh, or else the wheels just totally come off. I, I do think the wheels just totally come off, coming off across society is, you know, it may not be the, we're not inexorably headed toward it, but I definitely think, think it's an option. I, I don't want to be too confident in predicting the future. I guess, you know, maybe it's because I'm a liberal and I believe in liberalism. Maybe this is making me too optimistic and too partisan about the ability of liberalism. But liberalism has encountered radical movements, radical demands, irrational thinking, crises before. And, right, I mean, if you look at – it's not the same kind, but if you look at, at the way people were responding to the Depression in the 30s, the Communist right. Party – was very powerful, right? There was a lot of hmm. militancy and, and just like dangerous populism out there. Um, you look at the 1960s, there was a lot, of, lot of, you know, violence and, you know, society was really coming apart at both these times in ways that would seem much more dangerous than what we're going through now. And I think that liberalism is good at Okay, we'll we'll try to find the good parts of these demands, and we'll try to steer away from the bad parts of these demands, and and it, we won't get there in a straight line, but like we'll come out of this with like making the changes we need to change, and we'll be in a better place in ten years from now. I, I really think that that you know if you take the the long view, that 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 John Stuart Mill basically had it right that 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 you that you can get 
you can get through these these moments by by following these principles and there are people who do it and, and some of them are doing it in a totally like cowardly way like you're like you're pointing out but i do think that you can that you can get through it so even the cowardly muddlers may actually outlast <laughs> and yeah. eventually show a greater wisdom than than those who are on the assault and to be clear i don't think that's my role i mean i think my role right. is as an opinion journalist is, is, right. is is to describe the world as I see it and to, and to pick fights. And, but, but I do, you know, and I wish, I wish people, you know, uh, listen to me and, and, and agree with me openly, but that's just not the way the world works. But I think, you know, it'll be okay. So what, so what you're saying is, is that you sense in various ways, including people in your inbox and people you yeah. encounter, in various yeah. ways you have a sense that the vibe has shifted and also that yeah. there is a, I don't want to use the silent majority term, but there is a underneath the structure of preference falsification that is certainly still out there. Yep. There is a, a a general coalescence that this debate that began in tw 2015 is one that in the hearts of people who still can't come out and say it, that you and uh, I don't know, maybe me, but like that yep. we, we've won. That's that's what you feel in, in the sense of. People now, people now know that this is real, that it's not a campus phenomenon, that it's not something stupid, and yeah. that actually they will have to do something about it. Um, because if, if it were to continue, it would be unsustainable in the ways that you just described, and therefore it has to stop, and, and, and that people will, will, will do it. Of course, if Trump runs again and wins again, God knows what happens then. But, but, yes, that's, that's exactly but there is a sense that, yes, this is bad, it matters. And people now know it. You would agree with all those statements. In my corner, yes, I think that's right. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think in my corner of the world, mm -hmm. it's always centered on journalism, but not exclusively. Right. People I know in my life, yes, I see more people agree <laughs> with me. More people want being willing to push back openly, um, and more people. Yes, I, I, I see. I think the tide is turning. Okay, great. Exactly the way I can improve upon the way you formulate. Okay. Uh, Anything else you want to say? Or uh... yeah, the, the David Shore thing. I just wanted to go back to that because sure, sure. I, yeah. guess I think what, it's a very important moment. Yeah, yeah, that was an important moment. So, um, I what I still wonder is, would we know about this at all if I hadn't reported reported it out? Because mm. I heard these rumors, and I actually had to like ferret out what had happened, and I had to do like a couple pieces to kind of get get out what. Because one of the things I really discovered here is that people who are involved in these situations generally all have an incentive to shut up. No one mm -hmm. wants to, no one, because really the, the price of the, the, the price of being the subject of one of these uh, kind of attacks is not that you lose your legal rights is that you're cast out of liberal America. You're cast out of blue America, right? What, mm -hmm. what they really want to happen is for you to go put on the red hat. Mm -hmm. Trumpy. They don't, they don't need you to, to be unemployed. They don't need you to be in prison. They just don't want you to be able to be a, a liberal or a Democrat in their world anymore. Um, mm. People don't, people don't want to, to pay that price. Um, and if you speak out about it, you are paying that price, right? Then you right. become a cancel culture victim and then you're on Fox news, whether, whether you want to be on Fox news or not, you're on Fox news. Um, no one wants, <laughs> no one wants that. So they just, they just quietly slink away for the most part. Um, they don't want to bring and attracting more publicity just attracts more uh, attention to the accusations that you're trying to get people to forget. So I do wonder 
how many David Shores there are out there that have never been mm. reported. And I just right. you know happened to stumble across one and reported out, and and he and he got famous. Um, again, I'm you know I can't emphasize how bad a reporter I am. I'm as bad a reporter as you can be and still be employed by a journalist at Oregon. Um, I really just just landed face first in, in this story that people were telling me. So, do you think the cancellation would have stuck, and we just it, there would never have been this resurgence of David Shore had uh, the story not? Ha- I think maybe that would have happened. We just wouldn't have never heard of him. His influence on the Democratic Party, which I think he is a kind of influential figure in this yeah. turn, uh, it would be would never have emerged. Uh, Look, he's uh, he's he's obviously a brilliant guy. I mean, he's a, he's a yeah. brilliant, motivated guy. So he. You know, he's very motivated to get his ideas out there, and he's got an audience that's very motivated to understand what he's telling them because it's important, important information. Right. So I sure. don't want to say yeah. that um, that that I that I caused his career, but I do think that the, the circumstances that caused him to lose his job might not have been known. He might have just resurfaced as a Democratic consultant who, who just changed jobs without people knowing why that happened. Yeah, or but also it, it would have just been like, there would be these rumors that this person was fired for racism and there would yeah. no there'd be no record to say what it actually was. Yep. And, you know, and, and then he has this kind of pall over him and and he just doesn't become the thing that he had the, the potential to be yep. as a result. And as you say, we, we only know the ones that, you know, happen to make it onto the record. Yep. Even though a, a very bad, uh, you know, a reporter, uh, you know, just happens happened to be in a position to do it, yep. th- there wasn't going to be anyone else to do it, I don't think. And <laughs> and um, uh, so, yeah. So the sure thing, um, I think it was important for people to see what it was, to recognize the culture behind it, to recognize the harm that was done by that culture, yep. and and to really understand that these facial accusations of racism, like people have to see the real basis and be able to compare them, mm-hmm. right, to, 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 to what was being thrown out there as a reason yep. why this person should be excommunicated. And, th- and you need to see that in one instance, and then you need to see it in a half dozen instances, and you have to start paying attention. And I think the only thing that got a lot of people to pay attention was to see it themselves. Yep. And, and we needed to have enough of that to happen for people then to reach a conclusion that like, oh, shit, right? Like uh, a, a lot of this rhetoric that we're hearing about moral clarity and about white supremacy and doesn't live up to it because you see who they're weaponizing it against. And they're weaponizing people who clearly have the interest, not just the Democratic Party, but of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party at heart when they're making these interventions that are only supposed to save you from the certain defeat that otherwise would yeah. would would confront you um, and that would nullify your ability to serve the interests of any of these people that that the, their designated representatives who are canceling you on behalf of claim to be trying to defend and and so that's the that's the kind of basic argument to to be buried under disinformation in the way that you were and uh, smeared as badly um, were there moments, and uh, you know, I don't want to indulge because you didn't write the piece with self pity, <laughs> but did the response uh, pr- produce any moments of self pity, yeah. where it kind of felt like, well, you know, I'm being canceled, I'm being, uh, you know, uh, or was it just kind of like, oh, this is an amusing debate? Uh, no, look, I mean, I see other people see this re- response and say, I don't want that to happen. To yeah, me. but I love when that happens. To <laughs> okay, me. I, really, really, I find it energizing. Yeah. Um, 
I, I just, I'm just uh, unusual, and maybe this just so you know people say, "Oh, you're so brave," and it's, it's not brave when you like it, when you enjoy it. <laughs> right. um, this was like, I, you know, when I was, I started in college, I wrote one of my first humor columns, just kind of gently mocking some of the um, observances that were happening on the left. And it was just this column. I can't remember what it was. You had. Um, you know, like uh, Blue Jeans Day and Eating Disorders Awareness Week and all these, like, and they were all happening like the same week. And I just, just this very gentle, you know, humor about like, how am I supposed to observe all these, all, all these things at the same time? And then like two days later, I'm walking to class in the morning and I open the Michigan Daily and the op-ed page like across you know, the whole, the whole headline across the whole, well, it was changing to be more sensitive. And it was like this 600 word rant about the harm I was doing to marginalized people. And I felt this like, electric jolt. Like, this is, this is what I want my life to be like. Uh, yes. Um, I was so happy. So, um, yeah, well, so anyway, so I don't born to be, so opinion. please don't congratulate me. Right. Um, I'm not, I've not been deplatformed. I've right. not been decanceled. I'm, uh-huh. I've got my dream job. I can say whatever I want. So, um, I should you know, maybe be envied, but not be, not be. Yes. Paid. And I, it does seem in general, like across the various magazines, there is more of a d- determination to fill the traditional journalistic vocation. To, for example, you know, sort of report on uh, financial abuses of Black Lives Matter, which is happening in New York Magazine. Just a lot of stuff that yeah. I think people would have hesitated to to publish a couple of years ago. That like they're just they're just publishing and and uh, and it's 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 back to normal uh, in in some ways. It is. I mean, I what what I think we're doing is is I mean. I'll... The process that I would hope is like to listen to these demands, try to take the best parts of these demands. Do we have enough black people on our staff? No. Do we need, you know, it's just sitting back and hoping they walk through the door enough? No. So, you know, we need to take what's good about these demands for representation and diversity and listen to them and try to be better and ignore the, the bad parts of them. <laughs> right. You know, I, in, in our clumsy way, I think a lot of our institutions are kind of uh, fumbling toward that kind of response. Now, is the fact that they have institutionalized so many sort of like, you know, full-time political commissars who have an interest in there being a white supremacist pervasive thing to fight because, you know, their job is dependent upon the the need to fight these things. Is that going to produce a a permanent chilling effect or is there going to be a way to like live with the full-time professional political commissar who's whose job is to field any complaint and who doesn't actually have anything to do if there are no complaints to field, is there going to be a way to live with them? Or or does is one going to actually have to like get them to do something else with their lives? I mean, I've definitely heard references to people who have that kind of job at other places. Right, yeah. Um, you know, the sensitivity readers at the, yeah. at the literary, it's like, it's really troubling. And maybe, you know, there is um, enough of a stickiness to like the literary world where people aren't going to be able to root their way around these these censors. Hmm. So I don't want to overgeneralize from my experience. We don't have political, co- if we have political commissars at New York Magazine, they, right. they know to leave right. me alone. Maybe, uh, I, right. maybe I'm considered uh, too old or I'm too uh, senior yeah. or something, but but no one stops me from writing what I, what I want to write. Right, right. And no one has, you know, because Andrew has written about like, you know, uh, being reported to HR, right, for yeah. the content of a column as threatening the well-being and the yes. psychic integrity of, of. So so those things struck um, you as, wow, that's happening to him. That That's not part of my world. And, and yeah. I don't. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> I, 
I I don't want to go into any detail about an internal process, right. but, but but I'm but basically I'm I'm not concealing secrets. I don't. I mean, I've heard. <laughs> I think what you've heard. But I don't. I didn't really witness it. I don't really know exactly what, what what's going on there. <laughs> it's not what what happened to me. Okay. Again, my editor, the editor of the magazine, commissioned at PC Story. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, well, thanks a lot. This has been a great yeah. conversation, Perfect. and I think it will be fairly easily dividable into two different episodes. Yeah. And then when your piece comes out, you know, we'll we'll kind of circle back and and we'll consider the yeah. uh, the proposition that you represent. I, I take a much darker vision. I t- yeah. take a much darker view, but I do want yeah. to, you know, get get all that on the record, and and it's uh, it will be a good uh, moment for that. Yeah, and, and look, if I see you one day in the uh, re-education camp, you know, I'll, 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 uh, I'll buy you a Coke or, or a Google or whatever it is and say, okay, right. well, I was wrong. Yes, you'll, you'll give me your portion of, uh, right, of grains, right? Yeah, okay. the key yeah. All right. Okay. Thanks, Thanks a lot. This was a great conversation. Yes. So thanks for having me on. Bye-bye. This is the Year Zero podcast which is hosted at Substack, where you can go to read my writings and where you can subscribe personally to enable the continuation of this work at wesleyyang.substack.com.